This is God's word. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, And do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen. It will be done for you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer as we begin? God of grace, as we come into this room from all kinds of different places on the spiritual spectrum and on the experiential spectrum, uh, we come and we may have uh, doubts or we may have great sense of faith or gratitude for events that have transpired or just a sense that finally we feel like you are real or we have got over intellectual barriers that we can trust you. And others of us come with maybe with doubts, and we, we're sorting through these things, and as words on the screen promote a kind of deep connection with you, we're not feeling it this morning. Others of us um, have sorrows and pains that have been brought up during the holidays that we wish long, we would have forgot long ago. And some of us just find ourselves banging our heads against the same wall, the same um, uh, struggle, and we wonder if we'll ever break through. And wherever we come from this morning, wherever the, the place is that we find ourselves, may you speak to us, each and every one of us, in a, in a way that we walk out of here knowing that you have met us right where we find ourselves. And perhaps you've helped us to admit or to acknowledge the fact that we are more of a mess than we care to admit, and that despite that mess, you've moved towards us through your Son with your love. And that that is the response we can count on from you. Meet us through these words and with this kind of a grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, so think about this question and how you might answer it. Uh, what is the most important, essential item in your apartment or your house? A day, and day, day in and day out. What comes to mind? Most important thing. You know, maybe you think like TV. It's the television. Um, some piece of jewelry, you know, that's very valuable. Or 
Maybe you're just a very practical person. You say, the door. The front door is pretty important. <laughs> That's not there. Um, or the refrigerator. What would you do without it? I think that, you know, I don't know if there's a plumber in the room, but I think a plumber would answer that question differently than most of us would. Someone who, you know, especially this time of year, goes in into the... You know, into the trenches in people's homes to solve problems that none of us want to even come near. <laughs> and I think the, I think when you're in that kind of situation, you realize, ah, there's something I never even really think about that's really important <laughs> to my daily existence that if it isn't there, I'm in trouble. Um, you know, think about it this way. You wake up in the middle of the night. How many times, if you wake up and there's some kind of urgency about waking up at 2.30 a.m., it's usually not you're thinking, that fridge better work, that TV better work when I turn it on. There's something else you're really hoping works at that moment. You're really hoping it works at that moment. So, okay, what am I getting at? <laughs> Common question uh, that you have when I'm standing up here. The temple in the first century and in, throughout the Jewish scriptures, the history of God's um, relationship with his people The temple was a central, primary fixture in the life of faith. And apparently in this passage, we see that it's not working right. And things are starting to stink, is basically the message that we're given. And think about it this way, there's a repulsive odor of religiosity that's reaching the nostrils of the Father in heaven, and he has sent his Son to do something about it. Spiritual crap, to put it frankly. Um, It might be more accurate to be a little more crass than that, but this is a public setting. Um, And in the um, ancient faith of the people of Israel, um, in the first century Jewish people, God had given them a gift of dealing with their spiritual mess a way to process their mess. And it had to do with the temple. It had everything to do with the temple. Sacrifices were offered throughout the day at specific times, and people could come with their own thank offerings and guilt offerings, and it was all part of the system, but the temple was central. And, um, and at the temple, your mess was processed in a way. It was a God's gift to his people that... Despite how broken you are, how messy your life might be, you can come and I've provided a way with explicit instructions that you just if you just show up, there's a forgiveness and a reconciliation and a healing in this relationship between God and people. That's the temple. It's a beautiful possibility of dealing with your spiritual crap. And think about your own life. <laughs> uh, because you know, how do you process your mess? Because the Christian faith is really just continues this same trend. And becoming a Christian means exploring and learning really a new way to process your mess. And more and more seeing the possibility of not um, going about one of the many um, elusive, uh, unfruitful ways, but by going directly to God, showing up, and receiving forgiveness. There's three common ways that we, um, we don't go that route. The first is avoidance. And even just think about your relationships with, with people in your life, especially those closest to you. 
The first way route that we take to process our mess is avoidance, where you will end a relationship at the slightest hint of it getting ugly, of something uncomfortable happening, of a challenge that you don't really want to have to deal with. Maybe you've ended relationships because it just got a little too uncomfortable and intense and confrontational. Or maybe you've been on the other side of it and you've seen people head for the door as soon as it, you might say, as soon as it gets real. Avoidance. There's also overcompensation. That's the second way of not processing your mess appropriately. And this would be like, you know, you run to repair the situation and you assume all the guilt yourself and you just are full of of just the, the need to immediately fix things up and you maybe overcompensate in taking on the blame and, and just, just wanting to get fixed because you're so addicted to maybe people liking you and you want to get healed quickly and get it over with. And so in a sense, you overcompensate maybe on feeling the guilt or feeling the negativity of it. And then there's also, um, so if you got the avoider and you got the overcompensator, you also have the pretender in processing our mess. If you're the pretender, you want to appear... Um, in such a way that people see you as going through the motions of processing your mess, but really you're, go- you're taking the most minimal amount of reparations, you might say. Um, you, think about it this way. The only, you're a pretender in how you process your mess if the only time that you really ever apologize about something in a relationship is when it's pointed out to you. In a sense, you're never going there yourself. You're not grappling with your mess on your own. And when you are confronted, you want to appear to have dealt with your mess. And all of these things apply directly to our relationship with God. Usually the ways we deal with our mess with people is very similar to the way we deal with our mess with God. And at the temple, the time of Jesus, all three of these kinds of people existed. You know, it'd be easy to kind of brush stroke and say, oh, the temple existed as this, and just kind of paint a very simplistic picture. But there were people all over the map. There were people who just kind of thumbed their nose at the whole idea of going to this place of sacrifice. There were good Jewish people who just said, you know, that's, no, no, it's not for me. I never go there. There were people who overcompensated, maybe went to temple too much, were just burdened constantly with guilt. And there were others who, who went but there was something minimalistic about it. There was something just showy about it and fake about it. They were pretenders. And it's exactly that approach that Jesus gets really upset about in this scripture passage. That's what this is all about. It's the pretending. The temple at this time was full of pretenders, Jesus is saying. It is not functioning according to its design It's become a place that is not drawing people in, is not welcoming in any stretch, but is functioning to keep people out. And as um, the New Testament scholar Tom Wright says in his commentary on this passage, the temple had been intended to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world. The way Jesus' contemporaries had organized things, it had come to symbolize not God's welcome to the nations, but God's exclusion of them. The holy criminals who were bent on violent rebellion against Rome, which in Jesus' view was exactly the wrong way to bring about the kingdom of God, looked to the temple as the central focus of their ideology 
And, listen to this, the guardians of the temple itself were notorious for their rich and oppressive lifestyle. Violence towards outsiders, injustice towards Israel itself, that was what the temple had come to mean. So Jesus comes in and overturns tables and he halts. It's it's really the easiest way to halt the whole system for maybe half a day. I don't know how long he halted things. Bless you. But he came in and basically the function of this passage is he stops the whole system of this temple and all the things going on by not letting any of the buying and selling happening. There had to be, because people were traveling from all over the region, from different parts where there were different coinages, there had to be ways to, to purchase pure animals for sacrifice and exchange money. It's not that he was upset that any of that was happening, but he turns over the tables, he stops it from happening temporarily. It's like Jesus comes in, and if you know how a a toilet works, sometimes one of the ways a toilet breaks down is that when you do that lever in the back, there's a little rubber thingy, that's the official name of it, inside inside the back of the toilet, and that, that sometimes won't close. And so it's stuck open, and it's never filling up, and it has no power to actually do its work. And it sounds like it's doing all kinds of work, but it's worthless. And what Jesus does is he walks in, he steps in, and he reaches down where the water pipe is, that little faucet, and he turns it off. And everybody's in an uproar. And the point is, it's not doing anything. It has no power to work. It's not functioning. And there's a spiritual dynamic that he walks right into the middle of, and it's probably the most insidious kind of evil that there is to use religion and religiosity as a cloak of legitimacy um, to mask a lack of faith. If there is faith, it's not in God. It's in yourself and in as these people that hid it, that were hiding out in the temple, as it were. Their faith was in having the right ideology, having the right political opinions, and basically... Um, having their own plans for what needed to happen in life. Um, when I, when I was, I, one of the benefits of growing up in a small town is that you have, every once in a while you have this, these events that, are, that you don't have in places like Sacramento. There's a tractor pull <laughs> that would happen in the town I grew up in. I was never really involved in driving or, or any of that kind of thing, but I'd go to one every once in a while. And sometimes there'd be, as a part of these kinds of events, there'd be a whole lineup of old farming equipment lined up, you know, and kind of being shown off. And oftentimes, there would be uh, something making tons of noise, really loud old tractor um, that's been, you know, turned on and is working, and people are kind of crowding around looking at it, and it's making tons of noise, and it's working really hard, but it's not obviously going anywhere. It's not, maybe the wheels aren't even there, or it's just a motor, it's making a lot of work. It's making a lot of noise. People are standing around looking at it, noticing how cool it is, but it's not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. That's what Jesus is getting at, the spiritual dynamic of that. It's a, in a sense, Jesus takes a lead pipe and jams it in the piston and says, this just needs to stop. It's not doing what it's meant to be doing. Um, 
think for a second if that connects at all with your life. Is there a sense of working really hard at things? And in a, in a way, maybe it has a subtle uh, effect of keeping your attention and the attention of others off of um, the real you and the mess that there is in your life. All kinds of ways we do this. And taking the pretending approach with God actually becomes so absorbing and so corrosive that you can become oblivious to how amazing and, in a sense, how simple it is to move towards God to find forgiveness that's freely offered you. You get addicted to covering, to hiding. Imagine that you have a friend who's been telling you forever about this classic hot rod that they're restoring in their garage. And he finally keeps telling you, it's been done for a year. You've got to come over and see it. And you come over and you're excited because you're picturing getting in it together and driving around the block. And you get there and it's just, you know, I'm not into cars, but you could rattle off, it's this classic 63, blah, 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 blah. I don't know anything about cars. Um, um, and... Uh, and, and you get there, and you're excited to see it, and, you, and he says, oh, you expect it to be in the driveway. It's not there. He takes you to the back, and it's this dark, cobweb, dirty garage, and the car is on blocks. And he says, come on, hop in. Let's turn it on. Fire it up. And you're going, what's the point? Don't you want to take it out for a spin? Don't you want to get out on the open road? Isn't that the point? If you have a tractor engine, don't you want it to be out plowing a field? That's what it was made for. If you have a toilet, don't you hope it flushes? (laughs) Um, And in the end, Jesus seizes up the whole system that is the temple to make a very serious, very important point. Um, He's basically saying, um, this is a way of hiding and pretending and covering up what's really there. So the fig tree thing comes in. This interaction before and after where he speaks some harsh words to a fig tree, he seems very very bizarre. Is Jesus a petty kind of, um, you know, he seems childish almost, abuse of his powers. There's a fig tree, and there's all kinds of Old Testament um, scriptural texts that relate to uh, whether or not there's fruit and whether or not the fig tree has fruit. It's always kind of spoken of in the context of Israel and their um, sacrificial system in their temple. So if you know that, your ears perk up with this issue of a fig tree and no fruit. And um, we have to ask ourselves if there's a way that it applies to us. Are you pursuing externally impressive things, maybe accomplishments, maybe approval of other people, maybe certain actions, maybe religiously or maybe very non-religiously in your life, certain things that keep others' focus off your mess? You know who's really good at this? Ministers. People who are leading in the church because it's after a while you realize I can be helpful with doing all these things, with saying certain things and just helping people along. And it turns out, really, it never seems absolutely necessary that I deal with my own mess and that I'm being authentic with someone about what's really going on, that I'm processing my mess with others. 
But it's not just, you know, it's not just spiritual, it's not just religious people, it's not just ministers, it's not just leaders in the church, it's everyone. And the assurance of this comes directly from the very beginning of the mess. If you look back in the Bible at Adam and Eve, when they find themselves in a mess, they immediately do something. They realize that they're naked, and they go to find covers, and they, do anybody remember what they use? Fig leaves. And our mind is supposed to go there as well with this passage. They immediately go and sew together fig leaves to cover themselves because they're suddenly aware of sin. I have a fig tree in my backyard, and um, the leaves all just fell off in the last month. And after, I mean, pretty quickly, those things kind of get hard and rigid. You know, they get a little bit stiff. Imagine fig leaves on your bare skin. Not a very good covering. They're big, but you can imagine it's kind of peekaboo going on there with fig leaves. And, um, and it's unco- they get uncomfortable. They're not a very good covering, but right away Adam and Eve are going there. They're looking for a covering. They're looking for something as inadequate as it might be. They're sowing fig leaves to get the focus off the real situation to keep the hard questions from being asked. Think about that in your own life. Think about a bothersome person in your life. Maybe at work, maybe a roommate, maybe uh, you know, family after the holidays. A bothersome person. How do you sow a fig leaf in your relationship with people? You know, they're, they're bothersome. And so, you know, sure, if you tried really hard, you could kind of see the good and the bad, but in your way of describing them to your close friends... There's always a way that you're careful to emphasize certain things in the stories of the interaction so that it's, you know, you always come out on top and the hard questions about you are never asked because you've made sure they look kind of 100% in the wrong. You sow fig leaves. The motor's working hard, but it's disengaged. It's not going anywhere. You're pretending. Now, let's get to how this, how to really connect this message with us. Jesus gets real practical at the end of this passage. It starts out, it's, it's the way the writer Mark um, lays out the story. It's like a fig sandwich. There's fig at the beginning, fig at the end, and then some teachings. In the middle is the temple, and the things all relate to each other. They help us understand what's going on by playing the fig leaf thing off the temple. But you notice at the end it comes to this little teaching time, and a lot of times you just ignore it. It doesn't look quite totally connected, and sort of it it develops, it brings up these questions like, um, for example, uh, is Jesus promoting some kind of Star Wars Jedi Force kind of faith when he says, you know, really, if you just focus enough, you look at a temple, or you look at a, a mountain, sorry, and you could throw it and say, go into the sea and it'll obey you. You know Star Wars when the, the Jedis can make objects move at the bad guys? I have small boys, so I know all about that. And it seems, doesn't it seem like that? Jesus looked at the fig tree. Next day it was, you know, it was withered. Talks about, a ma- well, you could do even greater. You could make a mountain move. Um, that's not what's going on. And in fact... It's, you know, for some reason it's really easy to miss what is absolutely obvious in this saying in verse 23. Go, uh, you, it says, truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and you have no doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. What is this mountain? 
Do you know that the temple was on the Temple Mountain? This whole thing is about the temple. Um, this is this interaction when Jesus steps into the temple and stops the whole thing is foreshadowing the greater picture of the life and purpose of Jesus for us spiritually with God, which is to step in and put an end to the pretending that the temple was beginning to represent and personify and to step in himself. You notice in the story when he halts everything, the only thing that's left is Jesus standing, teaching. That's all that's left. Everything, All eyes on Jesus at that moment. This is the bigger picture of the life of Jesus and the bigger picture of how God handles your life, even in all your pretending. What does God do in the Bible, throughout the Bible? What does God do when we're found to be pretending and hiding? Praise God that he's always coming towards us and finding us. He does it in the temple. He comes right in the middle of all the pretending and puts a halt to it and starts talking, starts teaching. What does God do in the garden? He comes and he starts calling out, where are you? He's looking for the, the Adam and Eve as they're hiding. And then the real act of grace is he, did you know, did you remember this part of the story if you've ever heard it, that God replaces the fig leaves with animal skins as a better covering? You know where maybe this is going? Jesus when he in his death and resurrection he provides the new coverings he is the new temple raised up an effective covering for you people like you and me who are afraid deathly afraid of being exposed and jesus went to the cross and you know all the artwork shows jesus with a little bit of covering down there but if you read the Gospels, they're very explicit about the undergarment being taken off of Jesus before he was put on the cross. And in fact, it was a valuable, valuable kind of garment, and it was the story goes it goes into great detail about what happens with this garment that the soldiers cast lots for who will get it. Just to emphasize the point that Jesus was absolutely not just killed and crucified, but humiliated and exposed before the world. He did that. Why? Why did God's Son come to do that? To cover you so that you don't have to be afraid of being exposed. Jesus comes and takes away your shame and covers you, all your guilt and your shame, with himself. And in the, the end of this story, Jesus talks about forgiving and going to God in prayer and having faith and then going to God in prayer and making sure you forgive others. And you might say, that has nothing to do with what has all just happened before this, but it has everything to do with it. Jesus is pointing to how the power, not just of being having the new temple, the new coverings that are central to your life through Jesus' death and resurrection, but then to live in open relationships with others where you eagerly apologize, even though it hurts, and you eagerly seek forgiveness and seek to forgive even though it hurts. And in that sort of relational openness, you find that you are covered and you don't have to be afraid of being exposed anymore. You know the lyrics to the song, the Lauren Hill song, maybe? Um, 
singing, what is it, Singing Me Softly, is that the title? Killing Me Softly? That's what it's called. I got the lyrics here, but I forget the title. Strumming my pain with his fingers, singing my life with his words. She's talking about going in to hear this band, and the, the singer is exposing her as, he, uh, as his lyrics pierce into her life. Killing me softly with his song, killing me softly with his song, telling my whole life with his words. I felt all flushed with fever, embarrassed by the crowd. I felt he found my letters and read each one out loud. I prayed that he would finish, but he just kept right on. We're terrified of being exposed. Do you know that Jesus comes to end that fear and to cover you? What is 2011 going to be like? Is it going to be a year maybe of less pretending for you in some significant practical way? There's a man named John Corcoran, and he's the head of a foundation called the John Corcoran Literacy Foundation. His story goes like this. During grade school, he never learned to read or write, but he caused a lot of trouble and somehow kept getting promoted to the next grade. He got to high school and mastered new skills. He says, I started cheating by turning in other people's papers. I dated the valedictorian and ran around with college prep kids. I could read words. I couldn't read words. Sorry, essential word there. I couldn't read words, but I could... I can't read. I couldn't read words, but I could read the system and I could read people. He received an athletic scholarship to Texas Western College and cheated his way through there as well, getting a degree in education of all things. And somehow he got a job as a teacher, listen to this, and for the next 17 years taught in high school without being able to read or write. He says, <laughs> he says you know that you know, an illustration is effective when someone out loud says, wow. That's advanced preaching right there. He says, what I did was I created an oral and visual environment in the classroom. There wasn't the written word in there. I always had two or three teacher's assistants in each class to do board work and read the bulletin. Um, He finally left teaching and became a real estate developer, which if you've ever seen the stack of papers involved in buying or selling a house, that's terrifying. (laughs) Your realtor might not know how to read. And then he, you know, he learns how to read later in life, develops this literacy foundation, but this whole life of pretending. You know how much work that takes to keep that up? And you go, why didn't he just stop and just go through the basics? You know, how hard could it have been? Maybe that's 2011 for you in some significant way. Will you find one fundamental way to just be more real, to stop pretending? Maybe it's as simple as, you know, this is the... This, maybe this is even terrifying for you. The simple step of having a journal and you put some of your real stuff there for the first time. Or maybe you have a person, a real live person who knows the real you. Or maybe, hopefully, eventually you have a group. Maybe you have some community, a City Life community pod where you know that you can be yourself and be real. Every time I get an email about someone's experience in a pod saying something like, um, you know, this has been the first time I've been able to be real and able to have a safe place to open up and grow with other people. Maybe that's 2011 for you. Will you pray with me as we need God's help for this? God of grace, uh, your, your mercy is great, but we don't always know it and trust it. Your coverings are effective and way better than the stuff we make up.
but we're afraid to let them go. Help us with your Holy Spirit in the ways that we need to be uncovered and reclothed by your grace brought to us through Jesus on the cross. May we know that you are safe. May we know that you are good. May we run to you in this year and in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.